mass of torches in the darkness reveals faces full of rage. White, mostly male faces. Public violence and intimidation unmasking raw, hateful prejudice and resurgent white supremacy. Is this the Deep South of the 1920s? No, it happened in a college town last weekend. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our music along the way is all from Gil Scott Heron. Heron, who died in 2011 at the age of 62, was an American soul and jazz poet, probably best known for his composition, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. This is the song, The Clan, off of the 1980 album, Realize. Our show is The Same Old Hate, about the reactionary right in the United States of America, a country growing more and more divided each day under the still unbelievable reality of a Donald Trump presidency. Last week, we spoke with Nancy McLean about her book, Democracy in Chains, about the ways the wealthiest among us are financing efforts on every level to undermine any semblance of democracy this country might still claim to have. Today, we confront the boots on the ground with political scientist and author Christopher Sebastian Parker, who, along with his research partner Matt Barreto, has demonstrated just how pervasive and easily called into daylight the reactionary right is. From the inception of the Second Clan in 1915 through to the John Birch Society in the late 1950s, recall that Charles Koch, like his father Fred, was a member and forward to its current cover organization, the Tea Party. The reactionary right only sees the real America belonging to white Christians, and the Cokes of the world have fanned this flame of hate for decades. Christopher Parker is a professor of political science at the University of Washington. His most recent book is Change They Can't Believe It, The Tea Party and Reactionary Politics in Contemporary America published by Princeton in 2013. In it, he studies the ostensibly libertarian movement to reveal its motivations are not about the economy, stupid. It's racism. And Parker sees the same thing behind the supposed economic anxiety of Trump's most ardent supporters, overwhelmingly white, middle-class, middle-aged Christian men. In our quite upbeat conversation, given such a grim topic, It was recorded two weeks ago. Parker shows how racial retrenchment has recurred every time people of color make a step forward. From returning black World War I veterans demanding the rights of citizenship to the first black men in the White House. The Obama effect that stirred old hatreds anew in the form of Tea Party rage. And now, Charlottesville, Virginia this past weekend. Parker commented to me via email. Quote, this is just an extension of the Tea Party's Take Our Country Back campaign. Trump played on this with his motto, Make America Great Again. In both cases, the suggestion is that something's wrong with America now, and the real America needs to be recovered for real Americans. Sadly, Trump's unleashed the beast, and it won't change anytime soon. Unquote. You saw it coming, right? So Trump would be the GOP nominee. Trump would win the presidency. You argued that it wasn't the economy, stupid, but racism, reactionary racism, or even backlash racism. So uh, just sketch that in a little bit. What, what did you see coming? 
what I saw is that Trump basically activated the Tea Party. Yeah, people thought back when uh, Change That Can't Believe In was first published, or even prior to that, when the research was starting to leak out, mm-hmm. you know, people were saying, oh, the Tea Party is going to go away. And Matt and I said, not by a long shot. It's they, These people are not going away. They may change your name, but right. they're not going away. So, um, so basically, my presumption was that is that if these people were still around and I had no reason to believe social scientifically that they wouldn't still be around, that they were going to vote for Trump. And as we showed with the Tea Party, these people are really politically engaged and politically active, even if we think about them vis-a-vis establishment conservatives or other conservatives. We showed that in the Tea Party book, that they were really engaged. And that's what I thought was going to happen now. And it definitely happened. And it happened because these folks are really anxious and angry about the direction in which the country is going. This is not about the economy. People want to say, oh, it's about working class whites. Bull. No, it's not. It wasn't the case with the Tea Party. And it's not the case now. So so we show that with the Tea Party. But even if we think about Trump, according to exit polls, Trump won 48 percent of college educated whites. Now think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to say it's about working class whites, right? Well, of course you have some people with college degrees that are working class, but the case that a lot of people tried to make was that this working class thing fed into globalization and fears that were associated with that. Well, I don't think these people were were concerned with globalization or losing their job to globalization. Mm -hmm. It's just not true. And And so what happens with that is that if the diagnosis is wrong, that means the prescription is going to be wrong as well. So if Democrats want to say, oh, we got to chase these working class whites. No, you don't. Right. It's not. They're not the problem. It's people that look like Democrats who are well educated and not concerned with global economic change that voted for this guy. Mm-hmm. So and I think that Democrats just don't want to point them the finger at themselves or people that are like them. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen is you're going to get you're going to get the Democrat Party, which it's doing now, chasing working class whites. They're not going to get them. Right. But they're not the problem. And so what's going to happen is they're going to make a they're going to make a campaign based on class, which does not work for people of color. Hmm. That argument does it never it has never worked for us and it's never going to work for us. Hmm. And so and so what's going to happen is is that they're going to chase after these people who voted for Trump and who probably going to vote for him again. And they're going to leave people of color out in the cold and, and Bozo the <laughs> clown is going to win it. <laughs> well, uh, um, uh, I guess we can, maybe we cross the, the Pence divide at some point if, if Bozo uh, continues uh, to, to be president. But uh, uh, so I watched a bit of your town hall uh, in Seattle. Um, one of the, I don't, I don't know if you had multiples of these, but one town hall meeting you had. Uh, and what struck me when I was watching it is how ignorant I was of Trump's um, uh, sort of already like his major presence in the political arena. I hadn't realized how much he, well, I don't watch any TV. 
of that stripe, I suppose, right? Uh, so, you know, I listened to the radio sometimes. You know, you'd pick your news sources, obviously, but I didn't realize how much Trump was on these morning Joe-type shows as early as, as he was, right? So watching your your particular town hall and seeing these clips of, you know, Trump coming on and talking about a birther, uh, you know, tr- Trump being a birther supporter, that kind of thing, struck me as as, as how clueless I was. Right. And how clueless so many people must have been in general that that groundwork had been being laid for so long. Right. No, I think I think you hit on a really good point. And I think that um, I think that's true. And I think that people just didn't see this guy coming. Mm-hmm. Um, one, because perhaps they were ignorant, you know, that he he had not been as pervasive, um, you know, in the right wing media as he had been, because let's face it. We don't watch. I can't look. Yeah. I'm a black man, so that means I'm I'm prone to high blood pressure, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> For that reason, right? right? So, 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 yeah. So we're in this silo. We, we're in this. So even though the media has become small, de-democratized over the last 10, 15 years, we remain in these silos. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. And so a lot of people were ignorant to that. They were ignorant to hit to the threat that he posed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but what one of the things that's good is that. Is that what Matt and I show in this book on which we are currently at work called, hopefully you and your audience will like this title, it's called The Great White Hope, Donald Trump, Race, and the Crisis of American Democracy. Mm, Nice. And what we show is that the more people of color were anxious or angry about, in fact, threatened, you know, in a larger dynamic from Trump's um, candidacy, that the more politically engaged and activated they were. Mm. Uh, the problem is that not not enough people of color felt that threat. They didn't take him seriously. Mm-hmm. But the ones that did, they were out and about trying to vote and become more engaged politically. But not enough of us were concerned. And um, and so that was the problem. Mm-hmm. And so you think about, you know, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. I think what those were the three states um, in which. Trump won by some total of 77,000 votes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what Matt and I show in this new book manuscript is that if you change the percentage of people of color by only 1% in terms of turnout, Hillary wins going away. (laughs) Yeah, in in turning out the particular voting block, right? Yes. man. Okay. I'm I'm not even talking about white folks. I'm just talking about look up. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't say about 1%, she wins going away. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, you point to an interesting uh, dilemma for a lot of people on the left, too, is because of the infighting we've had on the left for so long, right, which would tar Hillary Clinton with all sorts of negatives as well, right? So it seemed to be the perfect perfect storm for racism and 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 not only, uh, you know, being uh, anti-feminist, but being anti-Clinton as well. Right? So yeah, the yeah, the yeah. perfect storm election, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. No, it no, it was. Look, I said this on the History Channel. Mm-hmm. I said this on the History Channel. I said it on my own column in a conversation, mm-hmm. and I might have said it one or two other places. This guy's going to win, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I said, look, if Democrats don't take this guy seriously, he will win. Mm-hmm. And I and I painted the perfect storm. I said, you're going to have some Democrats who don't like Hillary, and they don't think this clown is going to win. So why spend the time out? You know why? Right. Why go vote? Right? right? Why right. I don't like her? You know, knucklehead right. bozo's not going to win. So why should why should why should I make a stink as well? Like why should I vote at all? Because it'll be a stinky vote, and I don't want to be responsible for a Clinton yeah. presidency. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. exactly. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you know, um, the the birther thing was interesting to me as well because it, you know it's uh, and I'm I'm not sure how much you talk about it in the in the book uh, Change They Can't Believe in or maybe it was in some of the articles. But there's a there's an epistemic issue, right? There's the idea that we don't know anything anymore, and so a guy can come on TV and just say, "I haven't seen that birth certificate." Oh, and then I then he just he does see the birth certificate, and he's like, "How do I know that's true?" How do I know that's a real document, right? So yeah. we're in that world now where no one believes anything or chooses, you know, willfully decides to be ignorant about these things, right? So that the birther thing really struck me as being one of the most insignificant situations there was. How can you have even people from the other party, Republicans saying, of course, he's an American. <laughs> of course, he's an American. And then still have so many people believe he's not an American. Well, it's really easy when you really think, when one really thinks about it. So establishment conservatives, they acknowledge he's an American. And just like, you know, McCain said at mm-hmm. that town hall, you have that one old lady calling him a Muslim. Right, right, right. And like, no. See, McCain is an establishment conservative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan was an establishment conservative relative to where the party is now. Right. So, you know, and Bob Dole a few years back said, came straight out and said, neither he nor Reagan would survive, much less get elected in right. today's Republican. Right. Now, the reason for that is, is that you have these establishment conservatives and Republicans against these more reactionary mm-hmm. types of, stab- of conservatives and Republicans. And here's herein lay a principal difference. So a conservative, you know, doesn't necessarily embrace change or social change at all. They're, it's not something uh, that, that they feel comfortable supporting because by definition, they want to conserve the status quo. Mm-hmm. Right. By definition. Right. But what they but 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 they would rather have, you know, incremental, organic control change if it staves off more revolutionary change. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the whole sort of Burkean critique or or argument when it came when it came to the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. The ancient regime should have given a little more. Right. in Right. In order to avoid this revolution. And so that's how an establishment conservative sees change. Whereas a reactionary, they see change of any kind of subversion. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't want to give up anything. In fact, they want to go backwards in time. Right, right. Right. So they have this very nationalist way of looking at things, right? It's like this American society or national or American national identity should be this, mm-hmm. which is white, male, middle class, straight, that is to say heterosexual, mm-hmm. be Protestant, now Christian men, right? Right. That's who the real Americans are. Right, right. One cannot check all of those boxes. One is not considered a real American, and then one, therefore, will necessarily catch hell. <laughs> right. Well, that's a, a, a thing you make uh, much of in, in calling the Obama effect, right? Uh, and, yeah. 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 So, uh, and this has as much to do with, like you say, not being able to look in the mirror and see Obama uh, looking back at you. He's, he, I can't be president if president looks like that. You right. know, so, so he right. can't be president. There is no way right. that this America is 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 legitimate anymore. That's right. No, that's right. That's right. That's right. And be, and it's, a lot of it has to do with the symbolic significance of mm-hmm. office of the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. The president is the face of the country abroad, the head of government at home, right? And so the president. We all know who the president is from the time we're in grade school, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's so important. The president is the personification of the country. Right. And so for that reason, you just had 20 to 25 percent of the population 
that just could not abide an Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. It's time for a break. We'll hear a poem by Gil Scott Heron, The King Alfred Plan. More on the reactionary right and white fright when Interchange returns on WFHB. Ha! Brothers and sisters, there is a place for you in America. Places are being prepared and readied night and day, night and day. The white boy's plan is being readied night and day, night and day. Listen close to what rap say about traps like Allenwood, PA. Already legal in D.C. to preventively detain you and me. How long you think it's going to be before even our dreams ain't free? You think I exaggerate? Check out Allenwood, PA. Night and day, night and day, the white boy is scheming night and day. The Jews and Hitler come to mind, the thought of slavery far behind. But white paranoia is here to stay, the white boy scheming night and day. What you think about the King Alfred plan? You ain't heard? Where you been, man? If I may paraphrase the government notice reads, should there at any time become a clear present danger initiated by any radical element threatening the operation of the government of the United States of America, members of this radical element shall be transported to detention centers until such time as their threat has been eliminated. Code King Alfred. Bull I bet you say there ain't no Allen Wood PA and people ain't waiting night and day, night and day, night and day. There will be, without the Motown sound and Thunderbird wallowing in the echoes of Malcolm's words, there must be black unity, there must be black unity, for in the end, unity will be thrust upon us and we upon it and each other, locked in cages, pins, hemmed in, shoulder to shoulder, arms outstretched for just a crust of bread. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm for Interchange. My guest is Christopher Parker, author of Change They Can't Believe In, The Tea Party and Reactionary Politics in Contemporary America. In our first segment, we discussed the Obama effect, the Tea Party, and the rise of Donald Trump amidst the resurgence of reactionary right politics. Our conversation now turns to history, as Parker walks a straight line from the Klan of the 1920s to the John Birch Society, and finally the Tea Party, the last two of which the Koch family were very involved in, by the way. Finally, we arrive at Trump and Make America Great Again, the siren song the reactionary right has been waiting decades to hear. Let's let's work with the Tea Party then. Let's uh, let's walk through this sort of reactionary straight line uh, that you talk about and and go from the KKK and I guess that's the in the twenties is that their second uh, second iteration uh, from the twenties to the the John Birch Society and then on through the Tea Party as well. So draw that straight line for us. So yeah, so the first iteration of the Klan that happened in the nineteenth century that was founded in Pulaski, Tennessee. I want to say. Is it 1867 or 1871? Yeah, the tail end of Reconstruction then. or Yeah, the tail end of Reconstruction, right? Mm -hmm. Right. See, that was a regional movement. Mm. And and because it was a regional movement, it was allowed to be a lot more parochial. Mm. But what we studied in the Tea Party book were national reactionary movements, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's when we came up with the Klan of the 1920s. The Klan of the 1920s was founded 1915, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Um, and it grew and it, but there was a national movement though. It grew, it grew exponentially in size over time because it was a national movement. It wasn't as reactionary as the Klan of the 19th century that was confined to the former Confederate South. And because it was a national movement you had, and it was not as, not as reactionary, it, it attracted, you know, various and sundry people from, you know, across a range of occupations. So, so one would have, OK, yeah, you would have your lower working class white person in there, man, because this was only men at the time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but then you would, one would have, you know, attorneys, one would have bank presidents, one would have, uh, you know, teachers, right. That were part of the clan. And these people did relatively well economically. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this clan of the 1920s was concerned with the return of the quote unquote new Negro from World War One. And that is important because as I show in my first book, that, that black men who fight, you know, in America's big wars, they re they return from war with a, a new sense of race consciousness. Mm -hmm. They're not putting up with this bullshit anymore, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. For the uniform, they were willing to fight even if they weren't allowed to fight in many cases. Mm -hmm. They were willing to fight. They challenged Jim Crow overseas. Uh, and so, therefore, they weren't afraid to challenge it when they returned home. And it was the same thing, you know, with black men who fought in France. Half of the black troop strength, a lot of people don't know this, were they were lent to the French. Mm. So you had you had an entire division, the 93rd Division of black soldiers who fought in French uniforms. Wow. I didn't I did not know that. Hmm. Yes, they fought in French. You had the 92nd and 93rd Division that that were deployed to France. These were all black. Units. Um, they were officered by southern white men, which is not good. In right. The French and, unit also. No, not in the French unit. Oh, okay. So those <laughs> French command. Okay, the okay. ones that remained with the 92nd Division mm. fought under uh, Southern white men. And they were used basically as cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. But anyway, but the French soldiers, but that didn't stop them from coming back and demanding a full measure of equality. Mm -hmm. uh, W.B. Du Bois in 1918 wrote this really famous commentary in the crisis mm -hmm. uh, called Close Ranks. And basically what he argued was that we have these grievances and concerns, you know, uh, as black people in the United States that we're not treated as first class citizens. But if we go fight in this war and we prove our mettle that we deserve, quote unquote, first class citizenship, then when we return, it'll happen. Mm -hmm. It didn't. Right. And part of the reason why it didn't happen. One, you know, the United States was only in that war for a short period of time mm -hmm. Two, that the Southern officer officer corps. Um, they really, really didn't trust black troops. They thought they were incompetent and they treated them as cannon fodder, mm. right? And so they used this, uh, this, this, this failure in battle to say that black folks didn't deserve first class citizenship, mm. right? But still, you had a number of these guys that emerged from the war changed. Yeah, yeah. So think about the quote unquote Tulsa race riots, right? Mm -hmm, that happened. Mm -hmm. The main resistance from the black community came from World War One veterans. Right. Some of them wore their uniforms, mm, right? Mm. Yes, yes. So so there was a change. So there was a sense of new uh, race consciousness among uh, the black community because of black participation in World War One. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then you had this concern with Jews and capital, that, that Jews were using capital to their benefit, right? Mm -hmm. Then you had this concern with, um, you know, Catholics in the United States and that the Pope was trying to manipulate American politics. These are KKK concerns, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then the last one was through, uh, you know, the policing of white womanhood. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it led to the sort of reactionary ethos in which they didn't want change of any kind. They actually wanted to go backwards. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so and let me point out one other thing when it comes to these people who are always talking about the real Americans or real patriots. Well, that's what the Klan has said all along. Right. We're real Americans and we're real patriots, right? Right. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there, mm -hmm. even though nothing could be further from the truth that they're real patriots, right? Right. So let's move to the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society, founded by this uh, retired candy manufacturer, Robert Welch, in the late 1950s. And it was named, the John Birch Society was named after this uh, American missionary who was a 
who was a serviceman who was killed by the Chinese communists. Hmm. So Robert Welch, retired candy manufacturer who made all, most of his money based on the manufacture of this confectionery candy called the Sugar Daddy. <laughs> Right. Okay. We, we've all probably had. At I've least had one. one. Yeah, I've had one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sugar daddy and sugar babies. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so he's concerned that America is losing its place in the world uh, relative to the Soviet Union. Um, and he perceives that you have, you know, the Soviets and communism that are infiltrating society, but more importantly, American government. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So he starts the John Birch Society. It's a bunch of wealthy business people, including the Koch brothers father. Right. Fred. And so but what he was also concerned about is the infiltration of communism through the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a huge thing to him. So he was pissed off at Earl Warren for the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Right. They had a letter writing campaign in order to try to get him unseated. Now. Somebody should have told them this is not how this works. Right. But they did it anyway. They didn't like Dwight Eisenhower. Right. They Mm -hmm. thought him a communist dupe, you know, because he didn't he didn't go into China. Right. Mm -hmm. So. So we're talking about these kind of people. The John Birch Society was so out in the weeds that in the early 1960s. um, Oh, what's my Bill Bucker, William F. Buckley Jr. basically wrote them out of the conservative movement. Mm hmm thought they were so far afield, but not before they helped fuel, uh, uh, what's my man's name? Barry Goldwater's campaign in 1964, mm-hmm. right? They were key in him getting the nomination, mm-hmm. right? And this is important because Barry Goldwater got smoked in 1964 by Lyndon Johnson. He won six states, the five deep Confederate Southern states and his home state of Arizona. Arizona. Right. Yep, yep, yep. 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 But it set the stage for the Republican or conservative revolution mm. that eventually put Reagan in the White House because it started this momentum. Right. And so now so now we get the Tea Party is the next iteration. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in which we all know what that is. It's about preventing Barack Obama gets elected. These people freak out. They want their country back. That was their mantra. We want our country back. Take our country back. Right. And then now we get Donald Trump and make America great again. So if we think about these last two slogans of, you know, of this reactionary segment of the right, they're they're always associated with something that is temporal. Right. Going backwards in time. Mm -hmm. Right. Take our country back. Well, to what period of time? Or from whom it doesn't really matter because they're functionally equivalent, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Make America great again. Like, what's so fucked up about America now? Oh, that's right, it's changing too fast. It's time for another break. This is Winter in America by Gil Scott Heron. More on the racist roots of the Tea Party and how it offers political cover to the clear racism of our resurgent white nationalist hate groups in the U.S. When Interchange returns. And to the buffaloes. Once ruler plane like the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds looking for the rain looking for the rain just like the city that stagger on the coastline and a nation I just can't stand much more Like the forest Buried beneath the highway 
to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Christopher Parker joins us via Skype from Seattle to discuss the direct line that can be drawn from the Klan to the Tea Party. In this segment, we turn to tactics. Parker thinks it's time for the left to call out racism in politics when they see it. When they go low, we go high? Parker respectfully disagrees. Better, instead, to portray the existential threat to people of color that is the reality of reactionary politics. But at the same time, Parker wants to build some kind of common cause with establishment conservatives. They may fear rapid change, but at least, hopes Parker, they aren't longing to take the country back in time to a darker age, as the extreme reactionary right clearly is. What I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, from your book and your work with Matt and uh, Change I Can't Believe In, and I assume you'll do this going forward as well, uh, it's heavy, heavy with statistics, right? Um, it's yeah. heavy with poll numbers. And one of the things that's, uh, again, a, draw, a direct contrast to a lot of the things you read on the right side of things, right? A lot of the things you read from people like, again, this is from Nancy's book, the James Buchanan's you know, work in economics and social theory, is that they absolutely almost, at, as far as I can see, don't actually have empirical evidence for anything they say. You know, no. so <laughs> no, they don't. No, and so it's a really important distinction to say: look, look at all these poll numbers. Look at look at what we're doing here to to say we can really tell you what the what the country's thinking. You know, we can yeah. we can tell you what it means when somebody says Trump is a straight shooter. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it doesn't mean he's an honest man. 
it, me- it means he's going to tell you that he doesn't like immigrants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yep, what's no, important, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. No, what, so we come in it like that for a couple reasons. Mm-hmm. One of which is clearly because we're social scientists, right? right. And that's how we've been trained uh, to go about our work. Um, and, but the second reason is because because Matt's Latino and I'm black, we know people are going to come for us. Right. And that means we have to have all our T's crossed and all our I's dotted. Mm-hmm. Right. And so even then, though, in the Wall Street Journal, shortly after the data first started leaking out in 2010, this guy who does some stuff for the Wall Street Journal named James Taranto, he he writes an editorial, an op ed saying, what do you think these guys are going to find? One is black and one is Latino. <laughs> I mean, come on, dude. Seriously? Yeah. Right? You guys can't come up with (laughs) and everything, right? Right. So come with this ad hominem thing. But you know what? But you know what? You know what? It's okay. I used to get upset when they used to when they used to attack me like this. Mm -hmm. But I just come to realize if it's an ad hominem attack, I already win. Right? right? So I just laugh at it now. Well, it's a silly thing, obviously, because then I suppose you just, you know, you lay the claim right back at it. If you're white, you're only going to find things that support white people. Right, right. It's, no, yeah. Yeah, it's yep. ridiculous to say stuff yep. like that. Yeah. Yep, you know, it is, but, but they do it. <laughs> of course That's, they do. It doesn't stop them. No, of course they do. Uh, so what, what uh, I think you say in, uh, in a Salon article that, uh, that just came out not too long ago, a Salon interview gave, um, you know, you know what, what should be next for democratic politics, uh, you know, turning the tables and using the same, the same kind of electoral uh, electioneering, I suppose, or, or, or marketing of a particular way to attack uh, the, the right side of things, right? Instead of, you know, pretending that you're above the fray of, of, of politics the way the right plays it. Yes, yes. No, that's definitely the case, man. We really, we progressives really have to, it works for them all the time. And, but, but here's the problem with progressives. They like you said. They always want to remain above the fray. Oh, we can't do that. It's everything has to be about positivity. It's got to be about hope. We can't. We we can't sink to their level. You know, as Michelle Obama, as much as I, I love Michelle Obama, she says when they go low, we go high. No, we need to go low too now. Mm-hmm. That didn't work last time. Right. So so right. that didn't work. We need to go low too because we need to. We need for people on the left to. This is an existential threat. Right. That's what they. That's what they have to think. It, you know, and I know we're not people on the left aren't wired to think like this. Right. Mm-hmm. People on the left are wired to be able to work through, you know, ambivalence and ambiguity, whereas people on the right, they can't. Right. Because they just not disposed to do that. They need closure. They need certainty. Right. And in order to feel comfortable, they can't abide change. Right. Because change invites some uncertainty, mm-hmm. which begets anxiety, which then sometimes bleeds over into anger. Mm-hmm. And so. We need to start thinking about it like that, too. This is not this inexorable march towards progress. We can see that now. And progressives need to understand that. We can actually roll backwards. And so what amuses me so much about, you know, my my progressive friends, almost all of whom are white, I'm referring to now, Mm -hmm. they were so shocked that Trump won and they were upset. Because they felt like their world was falling apart. And for people of color, we were like, yeah, welcome to our world. Mm-hmm. This, is like us, this is like this for us all the time. Right. right? right. So now you know how this shit feels. Right. right? So- you will do something about it now. Right, right. Yeah, the, it's, it was uh, it was interesting to 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 watch that happen. I, I tend to you know do my best to to stay away from 
uh, arguments like that on Facebook or in, in places where you're going to get in trouble. But it was interesting to watch that exactly happen, you know, where, where people are like, oh my gosh, authoritarianism is coming. And, uh, and then to have, like you say, all, all the people that have been experiencing and people of color for so long say, this is my America. It's always been my America. It's not quite bad enough for you yet where you understand what it's like to live in my America, right? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, and this is a, this is an important point that we need to continue to make. It's you know part of uh, you mentioned Du Bois earlier. You know it's part of that uh, that deal that 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 he he talks about. You know poor white people being given. Uh, you're not as bad as the black person over there. So we'll we'll give you the crumbs. And I think we continue in that space, right? That's the Tea Party too, in some in some sense. Although I think you make the distinction, and it's an important distinction, and I think has been made enough already. But what we should continue to make it that the Tea Party is full of well-off individuals. And not the poor person making some uh, angry, you know, uh, you know, response to economics or or even race, but yep. it's it's wealthy people making a response to to race as much as anything else. So um, wealthy might be the wrong term, but you know, the Tea Party is as you, I think you say a hundred thousand dollars medium income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not. These were not poor people, and that's and that is such a that is such a gross misnomer. Right, right. These people are not threatened by globalization or, you know, like they live in paycheck to paycheck. Right. That is so not the case. Yeah. Right. I want to I want to make an allusion real quick to uh, what you said about Du Bois. But also mm-hmm. I want to update I want to update it with uh, what Malcolm X said. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X once said when the Great Depression happened, you didn't see any black people jumping off rooftops. You know why? Because it was already bad for us. <laughs> right. Man, that is awesome. I hadn't heard that one. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, the, um, the, um, the depression, you know, we've had, I've had many of these conversations too about the, the, the way that the depression kind of threw, um, you know, uh, the, the economics and politics of the, you know, the white man being best kind of out the window in some sense, right? Because you could say poor people and by this, you know, you, poor whites, poor blacks, et cetera, meaning, uh, poor people deserve their poorness. You know, this, this is what we, this was the, and this still is what we use now. But when the depression right. happened, all of a sudden, as you say, uh, people that had money no longer had money. And, yeah. and did they, did they deserve it? Right. The, right. the same arguments don't fall. Like, oh my gosh, I, did you deserve to lose all your money? Well, that's what you're saying about everybody else. Right. right. And there was right. this point where you think, well, did we make advance off that? Did, you know, is that how FDR was able to do what he did or, you know, whatever, whatever was made in the New Deal, which, of course, we can argue again is uh, it did help everybody, but it was a, a, a better New Deal for white people than black people, of course. <laughs> so, yes. And we have to keep making those, those, those qualifications every time we have these conversations. Yes, of course. No, yeah. of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So, you know, that's, that is a great update. And that's, a, that's, again, um, a thing that I think continues to make it difficult for us to, to have conversations, uh, together left and right. You know, um, as you say, there is a, there is a psychology at work in a lot. And I don't know if this is training psychology. You know, we've been trained in these, these modes of being since the, whenever this country is always right and versus left. Uh, it's always, uh, I need certainty or I'm happy with ambiguity. Lots of social science and, and research in psychology says people are generally this way or that way. And there's this third way, this middle way that can go both ways. Right. Uh, so it's like, what happens then, uh, Chris, you know, if, if this is hardwired, you know, this, this kind of world in which there's right and there's left, there's, you know, and then there's this middle, this, this sliver of middle that we hope changes our, 
our politics? Well, I have a couple working hypotheses um, that I hope to test here really soon. Mm. Um, both of which revolve around this sense of American identity and what we're supposed to be about. Mm. And I think that there is a, so look for people on the right, the reactionaries, they're gone. They're never coming back. Mm-hmm. Just, just le- leave them on their islands because they're never going to come back. Right. But establishment conservatives can, I think, be won over. Mm. Um, I think they can be. I think they, because they really about putting, and this is like based on anecdotal evidence, but that I hope to test pretty soon. But I do think that they're really about putting country before party. Mm. They're, they're like real patriot. Mm. Um, and so, if we think about folks like. You know, think about folks like, um, you know, just think about the early 1960s. Think about someone like Eisenhower, you know, who was more of a moderate. Think about Mitt Romney's father. Think about um, Governor Scranton. I forget his first name of Pennsylvania. Think about uh, the Rockefellers. Right. These are these more moderate conservatives who would put party before country before party. Right. Um, Gerald Ford, I think, was the same way. Hmm. Um, and, And so. And so I think if, if these appeals, if these more progressive appeals can be made such that change can be em- embraced, but it is framed such that it's about putting uh, it's about patriotism and realizing the promise of America or trying to work and continue to work towards making this country a more perfect union. Mm-hmm. You know, people on the left are going to certainly embrace that. And I think if you pitch the frame or pitch the message like that, some people from the right will embrace that as well. Mm-hmm. And that'll enough to form a durable, relatively progressive coalition that is geared towards change and an embracement, embracing of change. Because if you think about the democratic ideals on which this country was founded, it's really suggested there's, it's, it's really, social change is supposed to happen, mm-hmm. right? It's supposed to happen. So if these folks are really about the constitution, these folks are really about the values and, and beliefs on which this country was founded, you know, we should have change, but the change for the people on the right needs to be framed such that it's about patriotism. It's such that it's about this commitment mm. to these values, such so much so that one is willing to cede one's own personal uh, or individual interests in the interests of the wider and broader political community. Mm. Right. I think that can work. It's ultimately an empirical question that I hope to right. test here in very short order, but I do think it'll work. It's a sign of the ages Markings on my mind For our final break, we're listening to A Sign of the Ages by Gil Scott Heron. We'll continue my conversation with Christopher Parker about racism in America and the Obama effect when Interchange returns. With an angry sky There can be no salvation There can be no rest Until all old customs Are put to the test The gods are all angry You hear from the breeze 
as night slams like a hammer. Yeah, and you drop to your knees. The questions can't be answered. You're always haunted by the past. The world's full of children. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is The Same Old Hate, about the reactionary backlash to the election of Barack Obama in 2008. For our final segment, our guest, Christopher Sebastian Parker, talks about the difference between nationalism and patriotism, two vastly different political modes that have long been conflated by the Republican Party, and how the left must re-engage with the language of patriotism as a counterpoint to the violent nationalism on display in Charlottesville, Virginia. Standing up for democracy, equality, tolerance, values deeply ingrained, if not always acted upon, in the founding of America. Can the left shame the right's non-reactionaries into acting patriotic again? Parker's next project is to find out. When you finally go A lot of people conflate patriotism mm-hmm. and nationalism. Mm-hmm. So let me let me clear this up here. So mm-hmm. patriotism is about once again about this commitment to the values and beliefs of one society, mm-hmm. right? It's not a comparison to other societies, right? Oh, okay. mm-hmm. Which is one of the things that nationalism could be. Our values and beliefs are better than yours, mm-hmm. right? Nationalism, furthermore, suggests that there is. Um, um, and the way that nationalism is typically framed in any sort of Western country, basically any country, is in a relatively narrow form, right? Mm-hmm. A certain group of people, right? Forget it. Like patriotism is all about the beliefs of subscribing to a set of beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. Nationalism is not so much a subscription to this set of beliefs and values. It's about who the people are phenotypically. Okay. 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 Right? Mm-hmm. And culture in which these people are inculcated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So nationalism is very, 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 it's very selective mm-hmm. and it's very, very narrow. Patriotism, in order to be an American patriot, all you have to do, all one has to do is subscribe to the values and beliefs on which this country was founded, be committed to them and committed to such an extent that one is willing to sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. That's patriotism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Nationalism is not that, right? right? right. It's about this country is about this particular group of people, right? Right. This, this religion, this ethnicity, or this race, this language, right? Right. That is nationalism. So how do you then move from a group or, again, I always find the right 
to be on the edge of nationalism or nationalistic in those terms, you know, as opposed to patriotic, because they cast their patriotism in the terms of nationalism. That's exactly what they do, Doug. <laughs> there, look, there's a paper. If you want it, I'll see. I did a paper on this mm -hmm. like six or seven years ago in which I make this case, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. in which I show that historically it was right around the 1950s that the right yanked the language of patriotism from the middle, hmm. right? And it's been there ever since, oh, okay. right? Mm -hmm. Turned it into nationalism. Gotcha. Right. And a lot, a lot of people conflate the two, and it's right. understandably so because, as you say, most of the right does that, right? Right. But it's really, but it, but it's really only happening more increasingly now with the reactionaries, right? We can go all the way back once again to the Klan of the 1920s and identify this trend, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because they were they were the ones flying the flags. Oh, we're patriots! Bullshit! You guys aren't patriots. You're using a language of patriotism, all right, all right. rhetoric of patriotism. All right. Well, what are the what are the values then that we should be trying to like cross cross uh, political lines with? What are our patriotic values that we need to be trying to work with? Well, I mean, well, e equality is one. I mean, that's a that's low hanging fruit. That's an easy one. Sure. Right. Sure. Tolerance is another one. Mm. Right. Okay. So, so I think that uh, you know, I think that those are two foundational Western values, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, to which you know that to which this country, I mean, the founding fathers, you know, enshrined this supposedly in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not it was observed, I mean, we know it wasn't observed mm -hmm. universally, mm -hmm. right? But it's there, right? Mm -hmm. it's there, um, you know, King and Douglas and Du Bois and all these other folks, you know, appropriated those terms right through sure. the years, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and some of some of whom used it as a rhetorical device, some of whom actually really believed in it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So so I think those, those are those are those are in American values and ideals, you know, that shouldn't change. It doesn't it shouldn't matter what the political economy is. Mm -hmm. Right. It shouldn't matter. It should. But those values and ideals should be able to inform wherever we are mm -hmm. in America. And, and, I'm, and what I mean by that, wherever I'm talking about in a temporal context where mm -hmm. we are. In terms of time, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think those values are 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 enduring and eternal, right? It just it just depends on whether or not they're really observed by everybody and um and everybody believes in them or enough people believe in them where they can be sustained. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that you point out, and that that's the difficult thing again, is that when you you're in a country that has become, uh, I think, wider, uh, the gap you know between rich and poor has become wider. <clears throat> which leads a lot of the rich to imagine or, or at least believe, always believe that their their way is the right way, that they are superior uh, because of their success. Success means you're right. You know, even if you inherited your wealth, you're 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 doing the things the right way. This this is kind of um, a block against the idea of equality to me, right? It's not that I don't agree that there should be equality, right, or that we should see that people, uh, all people, are equal as people. Right. But but we have in the ascendancy now a very strong cohort of people who believe that there is no such thing. Right. That there are better people than others and the better people have always won or always been wealthier or you know what I mean? They're like I think we're struggling against that particular very loud and very well-funded cohort. So where, you know, what, what, where do we like attack that particular, you can't say to somebody, he doesn't believe in equality. He's a bad person. Like uh, what are the arguments to say the, you know, the, to say that the Koch brothers are bad because they don't believe in equality. What, what are the arguments, you know, that we can convince people that it matters? 
Well, what you what you do is you can one can always go back once again to the founding beliefs and values of this country and go back to equality or equalitarianism. The problem is, is those people, those people who who don't believe people are equal, they're going to go to the to the more, you know, to the free market, to the. So, look, right, a lot of right. people without even giving it any sustained thought, because it's always sort of been inculcated within us mm-hmm. that capitalism and democracy can coexist. Mm-hmm. Well, no, not really. Right. 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 <laughs> so, right. Because we've been. We've been but we've been brainwashed to believe that these two things can coexist. Right. Well, they actually really can't. Freedom and democracy, they don't. If we think about freedom in terms of economic freedom and democracy, those two things are really at odds. And they've yeah. always been at odds, right. right? Right. And so what you have to do with enough of those people on the right, you have to get them to see that freedom, economic freedom is not consistent, you know, with social progress. Right. Mm-hmm. Or small d democracy. It's just not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so but so if we take if we but if we go from and see what happens is, is most white folks think of freedom in terms of economic freedom. Right. People of color don't think of it like that. Mm. We think of it in terms of being free from discrimination. Right. Okay? So and so we have different we have different lenses through which we see these values. Right. People. A lot of white folks you know, we'll see, we'll think equality of opportunity is sufficient. Mm-hmm. And it would be if race hadn't things up so bad, if mm-hmm. they had done that so badly, right? right? People of color see, you know, see equality as equality of, of outcome, right? Mm. As a way to correct for the wrongs of the past. Right. Right. So I think that we can get, move, you know, uh, to a more universal or consistent understanding of these values then I think we can move forward, right? Mm-hmm. And but, but I but but I think it needs to once again come come under the rubric or within the general framework of patriotism, hmm. right? I think if you can get people on the right, people who who tend to believe in economic liberty or capitalism, if you can get them to see, like, look, you know, this is really selfish, right? Right. You guys consider yourselves real patriots. You shouldn't look at it like this. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I, it is a term that uh, that do, that people do sort of bow to, uh, especially on the right. In fact, you could probably say that that left of the the left of the spectrum would rather not use the term, <laughs> right? No, uh, no, no, but I, yeah. and, and see, the left needs to be disabused of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah because yeah. because it can be used as a powerful cudgel, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It, patriotism is inherently consistent or commensurate with social reform. Mm. Mm. If you think about the values on which this country was founded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole Trump thing, this this is not new. Mm-hmm. This is not sui generis. Just like Matt and I said about the Tea Party. Not new, not sui generis. It's been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do is I want to say, okay, this whole dynamic between racial progress and racial retrenchment actually started during uh, Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Right? Because before then, black folks weren't seen as an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it was only beginning then that we started being seen as an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is what we're seeing now is just is basically a continuation of what we saw back then. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's only but it only inc- it includes other races, not just confined to black people. Right. And so what I want to say is, is that whenever we see racial progress, it's about patriotism. It's about patriotism on the part of black people, you know, who are fighting for this country in which they weren't even first class citizens. Right. Mm-hmm. That's when it began. But it's also patriotic in terms of some a, a handful of white men at the time and some white women, you know, who were willing to sacrifice their prestige in order for the wider social good mm-hmm. on, and 
based on the ideals and values on which this country was founded. So just let me give you one quick example. Mm-hmm. There were several white, there were all white men who, who commanded uh, black troops in the Civil War. Now, a lot of people assume that black folks were in the Union Army. No, they weren't. They were in a unit called the United States Colored Troops hmm. because they didn't want to have black folks in the Union Army, hmm. right? So you had several of these white officers that later on became congressmen or you know or senators who who officered black troops, and you also had some who officered black troops who testified, you know, um, on behalf of black people based on the military service of the black troops they commanded, mm-hmm. okay. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's patriotic right there. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and so and we think about we think about King. If we fast forward to King, the civil rights movement, you know, people who were who were part of the civil rights movement, black people were patriotic because they were giving up their bodies. Right. Right. They were giving up their freedom. Right. But you also had their white supporters Mm -hmm. and who were patriotic as well because they were sacrificing their privilege. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and so you have that part of it that's patriotic when it comes to progress. But the retrenchment is all based on nationalism. That's our show. Our final song tonight is Gil Scott Heron's Shut Em Down. Thanks to Christopher Sebastian Parker, professor of political science at the University of Washington and author with Matt Barreto of Change They Can't Believe In, The Tea Party and Reactionary Politics in Contemporary America. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can download this show and so many others from our website, wfhb.org news slash interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Well, it wasn't no earthquake, but it's a dub round. Maybe think about power, like it or not. I gotta work for earth for what it's worth, cause it's the only earth we got. Shut up down. That's the only way to stop them building down. Yeah, shut up down. See you like, that's the only way to keep them building down.